Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and um, in the church Bibles here it's page 1419. Page 1419. For those of us, uh, those of you who are joining us today, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been going through this for the last three plus years and Today we look at the last part in Matthew 26. Uh, the longest chapter in Matthew is this chapter. And our text today is going to be from verses 69 to 75. Matthew 26, 69 to 75. A familiar and yet sad story. Uh, this is a story that describes the tragic failure of Peter when he was faced with great opposition. Remember, this is the same Peter who in Matthew 16, in verses 15 through 16, in response to Jesus' question, who do you say I am, without any doubt, responded, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's the same Peter, three times in this passage, denies knowing the man, Jesus three times in verses 70, verses 72 and 74. He says, I don't know, don't know the man. I've titled this morning's message as, When a Believer Falls. When a Believer Falls. Now, even though this is a tragic story of a believer falling greatly, I also believe this is a story that should fill us with hope and comfort because which one of us can stand and look at Peter and say I wouldn't do that we're there constantly we, we fail Jesus on a regular basis so that's why I want us to look at this passage as a passage also while it's, it's, it's a passage describing failure but also it's a passage filled with comfort and hope I say that because this incident is not the final chapter in Peter's life, thankfully. This is not the last chapter. Peter, as we know, does get restored back into the faith because of Jesus' unrelenting and never-ending love for Peter and by extension for all of us who are his. And that should be encouraging to each and every one of us. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this passage. You follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to pray and then look through this entire passage and then draw three truths that we need to remember, especially as we go through the challenges of our daily life and also in times when we unfortunately fall greatly. So here we go. Let's read verses uh, 69 through 75. Once again, if you don't have the text open before you, it's page number 16, I'm sorry, 1419. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you are talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. 
verse 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Let's ask the Lord to bless his truth. Father, would you please uh, help us to see the truths you have in store for us. We don't want you just to inform our minds, Lord, we, we, we pray that you will, as you inform our minds, that you will stir up our emotions and also our will to respond in the way that you want us to respond. For you have not put this passage in all the four Gospels without a purpose. So please, Lord Jesus, help us to see through your spirit what you want us to see and to submit to the truths you have in store for us. We need you. I need you as I proclaim your truth and we all need you to help us receive this truth with meekness and with uh, uh, trembling and at the same time with also that confidence and comfort that through this passage you will also build us up. Please protect me, for I am a sinful man. The great prophet Isaiah said he was a man with unclean lips. When he says that, what can I say, Lord? I too am a man far unclean with my own lips. So please help me to speak your word the way you intend for me to speak and overrule my mistakes and bring glory to yourself through the proclamation of this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a little over three weeks since we were last in Matthew. And in the last uh, uh, last message in Matthew, we saw verses uh, 57 to 68, where we saw our Lord uh, going through this unjust trial before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And um, in the end, it, it ended with them sentencing Jesus to death. And as I mentioned, uh, uh, as they sentenced him to death, we also saw the ugly scene, the ugly scene of him being spit in his face, being struck and slapped by the very hands he created and mocked by the very lips he created. It gets worse and worse before it gets glorious for our Lord. And here in this passage, even though we don't see Jesus himself being tortured, though that was happening uh, on the side there in the background. The focus is really on Peter's actions here. And uh, not just this uh, section, but in the very next section in verses 1 through 10, the focus is again on uh, Judas's uh, uh, failures. Two close disciples of Jesus, they turned their backs on him. Two very close disciples. One temporarily, that's Peter. One permanently, that's Judas. That must have been emotionally so hard on our Lord. Imagine when people close to you, people with whom you've had intimate friendship with, people with whom you've broke bread on many an occasion and had many good times, suddenly turn their backs and betray you. How would you feel? How would you
what you feel. Now, take that feeling and multiply it by a hundred, by a thousand. That's how the Lord would have felt. The Lord would have felt it even more because His love was always a pure love, unlike ours. So He's going through the physical torture, but also going through emotional pain as He's seeing two close disciples of His falling away. Now in one sense we've been prepared for this incident of Peter's denial. Remember earlier in this very same chapter in verses 31 through 35 our Lord predicted not only Peter's failure but also all the other disciples. And remember Peter despite the Lord's clear words vehemently said verse 33 even if all fall away on account of you I never will. And then again in verse 35 even if I have to die with you, I never will disown you. I never will. Twice it's repeated. I never will deny you. I never will disown you. And, and, and we saw Peter in keeping with his words. He tried when the soldiers came, how he took the sword and started attacking them. And he even got Malchus's ear. He went for his head, missed the head, got his ear. So there was Peter trying to live up to his words. But as Jesus predicted in verse 56, all the disciples deserted him and fled. But later in verse 58, we see as Jesus' first unjust trial starts, you find Peter there. Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Matthew does not tell us how Peter got there, but John in his gospel in John 18 verses 15 through 16 tells us it was because of John who knew the high priest, he was able to bring Peter along with him. So here's Peter seeing the, uh, seeing the Jewish leaders put Jesus on trial. He saw all the false witnesses one after another come forward to accuse Jesus. He saw Caiaphas seeing Jesus being silent put him on oath and asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Verse 63. But then notice Jesus' response in verse 64. What a majestic response. You have said so. The idea is that's true. You're right. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Peter's hearing this response of Jesus. Perhaps in his mind, He's thinking, he just, Jesus just declared who he really is. And he was hoping Jesus would unleash his messianic powers right then and there after that statement. After all, he did see Jesus' power just a little while ago when the guards came to arrest Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus says, when, people, when the guards ask, are you, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Are you Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am he. As soon as he said that, what happened? The guards drew back and fell down to the ground. That's power. Just spoken word. Peter saw that. And Peter remembered, this is the Messiah. He controlled the seas. He had power over demons. He had power over diseases. He could heal someone from long distance. They Peter probably would recall all these things. 
So he's thinking, oh, he just made this bold confession. Now, it's a matter of time. He's going to unleash his power. But what he really saw was shocking. Here's Jesus, silent as the lamb before its slaughter, being spat on his face, being beaten by the hands of the guards, being mocked, being accused, and he's taking it all in silence. All this would have rocked Peter, perhaps slowly registering Jesus' words throughout his earthly ministry, the Son of Man will be mocked, spat upon, crucified, slowly sinking in. You see, it's one thing to say bold things and even attempt bold things when Jesus was with you. Because he said all those things when Jesus was with him. Now Jesus is not with him. He is there, out there, rejected and abused. He is seeing Jesus as a helpless victim in the hands of cruel men. As he sees that, he starts collapsing on the inside. Fear would have gripped him. The kind of fear that despite being a fisherman who would have seen many a storm. A kind of fear that he would have never encountered even during his fishing days. So here's his mindset as we pick up the story in verse 69. Here's where we read about Peter's darkest hour. Look at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. You know, because Jesus spent so much of his uh, uh, pre-public ministry, so to speak, in Nazareth, and then during those three and a half years, he would come to the temple, he had uh, a ministry in Jerusalem, so he would be known by the people. They, they knew him as Jesus of Nazareth because Nazareth was a city in Galilee, and uh, they knew he came from there. Notice it wasn't a question. It was an accusation. You also were with Jesus of Galilee. Hey, you were also there with him. We've seen you with him. And here's Peter sitting in enemy territory, already gripped with fear. What does he do? Makes an impulsive response, like what we might call a knee-jerk reaction. He denies knowing Jesus, just as Jesus predicted earlier. Look at verse 70. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. You see, that phrase, I don't know what you're talking about, was the standard form of denial in Jewish legal texts. When someone says, I don't know, it was like, this is, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. The same Peter who boasted he would never deny Jesus, the same Peter who took a sword to attack soldiers, guards, trained people, just a little while ago, now lost his courage when questioned by an ordinary servant girl. How the strong can so easily fall. So here's denial number one. It only gets worse. As the accusations increased, the more emphatic Peter's denials become. Look at verse 71. Then he went out to the gateway. He, maybe he wanted to get away from this particular crowd here. As he go, went out, there was another servant girl who saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, it's not a question. It's stated as a fact. This title, Jesus of Nazareth, 
when used by Jesus' friends and followers, had a friendly meaning to it. In fact, the same Peter, later in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Acts 3, verse 6, and Acts 10, verse 38, would describe him as Jesus of Nazareth. Even Jesus, when he met with Paul on the road to Damascus, in Acts 22 and verse 8, tells Paul, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. So there's a friendly side to it. But when his enemies would use it, it, it was a degrading term, a term of scorn, because Nazareth was looked down. Remember Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So they looked down. Most likely here, the servant girl is looking down. You were with that fellow. You were with him. So Peter has already seen Jesus is degraded here. So what is his response? He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. Here's denial number two. But notice what's different from denial number one and denial number two. There's two additional things Peter does in his second denial. Number one, he adds an oath. Look at the text. It says he denied it again with an oath. Peter is realizing no longer can a plain answer save my skin. So he goes to oath taking. What do we do typically when we're not believed. I swear. Right? It quickly comes out. That's what's happening here. He wants to be believed. But notice what he does here. Taking an oath, taking an oath implies I'm appealing to God himself to testify what I'm saying is true, even though it's a lie. It, it's an appeal to God himself by, by taking a note, what Peter is doing here is, may God put me to death if what I'm saying is a lie. His fear of dying at the hands of people crowded out his fear of dying at the hand of God. See that? That's what fear does. That's what fear does here. That's how badly he fell. Obviously, Peter himself forgot the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount those words of warning about being flippant with our lips in terms of taking oaths. Let me remind you again. Matthew 5 verses 33 through 37. Again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break an oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it is God's throne, or by the earth for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Be Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Peter's oath is coming from the influence of the evil one. Remember Jesus said, Satan has desired to sift you. So his oath, false oath, is coming because now he fell the attacks of the devil. In fact, not only does Peter disobey Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, but he's also disobeying the Father's commandment given through Moses on Mount Sinai, specifically the third commandment. Third of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 27 says this, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. What is he, Peter doing here? He's swearing in the name of the Lord, name of Yahweh, as he tells this lie. 
that's blasphemy. Again, the punishment for blasphemy is death. But notice the second thing Peter did in his the second denial. He says, I don't know the man. In first century times, calling a person whom you know as the man was a way again to express contempt toward that person. I don't even want to be associated with this man. See, that's how, that's how Peter is distancing himself. The downward spiral of Peter continues further. Few more minutes passes. Luke tells us in Luke 22 verse 59, it was about an hour. An hour has passed. This time it was more than one person who approached Peter. In fact, one of the people who approached Peter was actually a relative of Malchus, whose ear Jesus cut off. Look at verse 73. After a little while, those standing up there went to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Again, it's not a question, it's an accusation. You are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Mark tells us in his account, the accusation came as, Surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. Galilean. You see, people from Galilee had a particularly different accent than people from Judea. Their speech was different. The common language spoken was Aramaic. They would speak it a little differently. Typically, Galileans were told were careless with their vowels and didn't differentiate the ways consonants were said. But Judeans were a little more careful, precise, I guess. So they could pick it up from Peter's accent. Hey, you're not from around here. You're from over there. Peter is feeling the noose tighten around his neck even more. So what does he do? He gets even more emphatic in his final denial. You see, that's the danger of one lie. You have to keep on telling multiple lies to cover that initial lie. That's what happens. Lies breed lies. Look at verse 71, Peter's third and final response. He began to call down curses. What he's saying is, if, I'm what, I'm, if what I'm about to say is not true, may God kill me. Again, he's disobeying the third commandment. He swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. He's affirming his quote-unquote innocence. I don't know this man you're talking about. And for the second time, again, as I mentioned, guilty of blasphemy. The calling of curses was uh, a legal way to affirm one's innocence. If nothing happens to me, then it's proof what I've said is true. Peter didn't die. So, He's convincing the people, hey, what I've said is true. That's what fear of self-preservation does. It takes us to extremes that we would never think of going to. We start with it's just a small white lie. How can those two words white and lie go together? It's a lie. Why do we paint it white? God is a God of truth. We are the children of truth. And how tragic to see a true believer fall. I mean, imagine Peter just had his feet washed by Jesus. Peter broke bread, the last Passover, 
turned over into what we call as a Lord's Supper. He partook of that. He saw Jesus cry out in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, he kept denying that he even knew Jesus. Look at the contrast here. Peter, despite knowing Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, afraid, is afraid to acknowledge Jesus' true identity. But the Lord Jesus, when he was asked to affirm, is, is this who you are? Notice, he says, I am. Not only that, he says, you'll see me sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. That truthful affirmation of Jesus in verse 64 cost him his life. In Peter's case, his temporary denial may have preserved his life, but he lost his character, didn't he? It's a beautiful contrast here. Faithful Jesus versus the temporary faithless Peter and the permanently faithless Judas. This passage is set in that context so that the writer wants us to see, look at Jesus, look at yourself. It's a vivid contrast. Jesus made the good confession and later he would make the good, good confession before Pilate also. And that's what would eventually put him on the cross. Truth has a price, but a price worth paying. Notice what happened as soon as Peter denied Jesus the third time. Look at the last part of verse 74. Immediately a rooster crowed. Once again we see how precise the predictions of our Lord is. How precise. Jesus predicted before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Mark in his gospel talks about two crowings of the roosters. They're a contradiction. We know word of God can never contradict itself. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Luke, and John, don't say there was only one. Their focus is on the last rooster, which was before daybreak. Mark is a little more precise because remember Mark is believed to have written the gospel with the guidance of Peter. Peter would have given him a little more details. The point of this is not how many crowing. The point of this is Three denials before that specific crowing that people would be more familiar with. Roosters crowed more than once at nights there. It had its effect on Peter, didn't it? Look at what happened in verse 75. Then, as soon as that rooster crowed, he remembers. Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me Three times. Three times you will disown me. And that's exactly what Peter did here. Now before we look at the last part of verse 75 here, I want you to turn with me to Luke 22. A couple of books to the right. Keep your spot in Matthew. In Luke 22, we're going to look at uh, verse 60. Let me give you the page number here in a minute. It's page 1504. I think this has much significance uh, to the story here. Uh, Luke 22, we're gonna read from verses 60 through 62. We'll pick it up from Peter's third denial uh, from Luke's point of view. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Don't miss that. 
the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And in verse 62, he says, and he went outside and wept bitterly, which is exactly what Matthew says, the last part of verse 75. The look by Jesus into Peter's eyes cut him to pieces. That look has more than we can understand. It's not just look of, you know, look at you, you've fallen. Remember my words. That look is again a look of assurance. I'm going to pick you back up. But that cut him to pieces. That word wept has the idea of loud crying. So that's why he moves away from there. He's bawling. To put it in our terms, he's bawling, weeping. Because he knows. That's, that's the tears of a truly repentant heart. We'll talk next time about the contrast between the tears of true repentance and the tears of false repentance. But for today, our focus is this is a cry come from a heart that truly grieves over its sin. Peter really did want to do the right thing. There's no question doubting Peter's love for Jesus. But he did not really submit to Jesus' teachings here. Peter is never mentioned by name in this gospel again, even though he was there as one among the eleven in the end where Jesus gives the great commission in Matthew 28 and verse 16 on. So ends this part in this gospel, but we know that's not the end of Peter's story. I mean, a look at a passage like this, when a true believer falls, what lessons can we learn? Because this account is given in all four gospels, which means there's a significance to it. I came up with three lessons, three truths, three lessons that I believe has a direct impact on every believer every believer in our daily lives. Here's lesson number one that we can take to heart. We must never ever overestimate our own spiritual strength. We must never ever overestimate our own spiritual strength. That was Peter's main problem, wasn't it? An overestimation of his own spiritual strength. I won't deny you. Even if others do, I won't. What was the root of such self-confidence in his own strength? Pride. Pride. As Solomon wisely said, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16 and verse 18. Pride goes before a fall. Happened there earlier at the upper room and fall happens right now. That's why the Bible constantly reminds believers to pursue a lifestyle of humility. Peter tells us in First Corinthians, Paul tells us in First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. To the proud Corinthians, this is what Paul writes. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul doesn't say you are standing firm. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In all honesty, all of us 
children of God, true believers are just a step away from falling and that too falling very badly. We're all a step away because we are weak, frail human beings. Past faithfulness is not a guarantee of future faithfulness. Every minute we need to remind ourselves I must not overestimate my own spiritual strength. Peter had to learn this lesson and from his example, we need to remember lesson number one, never ever to overestimate our own spiritual strength. Here's lesson number two. While we should not overestimate our spiritual strength, we must also never ever underestimate our need for constant watchful prayer. We must not underestimate our desperate need for constant watchful prayer. This really is a logical extension of the first one. When we overestimate our own spiritual strength, guess what? We will underestimate the need for humbling ourselves before the Lord and seeking Lord in prayer. Remember how Jesus prayed three times in the garden and three times he kept warning the disciples. Keep watch and pray so you will not enter into temptation. In context, that temptation was denying me. They didn't. They didn't take his word seriously. And as a result, what happens here? They felt we don't need to be watchful. What happens? They all fell. With Peter denying him in the most shocking manner. Same with us. Scriptures repeatedly warn us, command us, remind us of the need for constant watchful prayer. Why? Because temptations are all around us. I mean, spiritually speaking, we're walking on this ground that is, has so many hidden landmines just to get through a day without badly bruised is an act of God's grace. We do get bruised. Badly bruised. It's an act of God's grace. How much should we be mindful of our constant need? Lord, I need you. I need you. I need thee every hour, said the hymnist from long ago. Matt Marr in his song says, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. But all that the Lord sometimes gets from us is the tip of the head because we are so busy indulging in the pleasures of this world. So busy in so many different things. Watch and pray is a constant crying call of the scriptures. We must believe and yield to this command. Finally, here's lesson number three to learn from the fall of Peter. Yes, we must not overestimate our own spiritual strength. Yes, we must never underestimate the need for constant prayer. Third thing, this is the most beautiful thing. We must never ever forget Jesus is always interceding for his people. Even though Matthew ends with Peter's denial and his weeping, we know from the other gospel passages this was only temporary. There's two gospel passages that talk about that this fall was just temporary. Go back to Luke 22 again. I want to show you something. Again, a very familiar one. Luke 22. This time we're going to look at verses 31 and 32. Page number 1502. Page 1502. 
Look at the words Jesus spoke to Peter before he predicted his fall. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. The word asked is a weaker word. It's technically demanded. He wants your soul. But I have prayed for you, Simon. Jesus singling Peter out here. All of you are going to be sifted, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So here's Jesus before telling Peter, you're going to deny me. He also tells Peter, I've prayed for you. So your denial is not going to be permanent. Your turning back on me is not permanent. I've prayed for you. You will be restored. And when you are restored, there's a ministry for you. There's a ministry for you. Obviously, Peter didn't hear that part at this point in time. So he's given to despair. And by forgetting that, weeping, and yes, the weeping is needed, but he forgot the restoration part. That's why we need to remember, yes, it is important, we must be humble. Yes, it is important, we must constantly rely on God, but at the end of the day, it's not us who keep ourselves in the faith. Human responsibility is very important, but what keeps us is Jesus's unrelenting, unending love and intercession for his own. That's our ultimate confidence. That's our ultimate confidence. We are kept in the faith because Jesus will not lose even one of his own because he continually lives to intercede for them. Father, Jesus prayed, I want those whom you have given to me as a gift to be with me where I am. And the father will not deny that son's request because we are kept in the son's hand. We're kept in the father's hand. Of those that you've given me, I shall lose none. Jesus promises in Matthew, I mean, sorry, in John chapter 6 as well. So we are kept. Right now, Jesus is interceding for his own. Right now. Did Jesus keep his promise in restoring Peter? You bet he did. The last chapter of the Gospel of John tells it. You don't need to turn to it yet, but in verses 15 through 17, that's familiar passage for you. Three times, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes. With all his weaknesses. Three times you deny. Three times I'm asking that to affirm to you, Peter, I'm restoring you back. Even though you denied me, Peter, I love you. You're my own. You had to go through that to learn some lessons so through you others could be benefited. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. You can feed my sheep, you can feed my lambs with the truths that you have learned and what I'm going to show you even more in the coming days of your life. Did Peter learn from his fall? Did he learn? I believe he did. On what basis do I say that? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, page 1732. I want, I want us to pick it up from verse 6. Here's what a restored and a Holy Spirit indwelt Peter wrote in his first epistle. 1 Peter chapter 5, page 1732. We're going to look at, pick it up from verse 6. Notice what Peter commands us to do. 
Humble yourselves therefore. The therefore points to the verse earlier. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Doesn't that tell us Peter got the point about not overestimating one's own spiritual strength because of pride but to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Yes. And then look at the next verse. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Doesn't this tell us Peter now learned the danger of never underestimating our need for constant watchful prayer? Hum casting our cares on him is one of the expressions through which we display our humility. But why? Why are we, well, why should we constantly keep watchful and keep praying is because of the next verse. Look at verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Where did Peter get this understanding from? Who sifted him there during those trials? Satan. So as he writes this, he's recalling his own experiences. That is why I'm writing to you, persecuted believers, he says. Humble yourself. Don't overestimate your own strength. Keep on being watchful in prayer. Humble yourself through prayer. Constant need. Because the enemy is active. He wants to bring you down. And the only way to resist is, one of the ways, apart from scripture, to resist is attacks is to be watchful and prayerful. It's interesting, in verse 7 of the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says the same thing, end of all things is near, so therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Have this idea of being serious so that you can pray. We are serious about so many things. With so much passion, we give ourselves to so many things. And yes, a Christian must excel in all the spheres God has placed him or her. But why is it that we're not sober-minded to give ourselves to prayer? It's convicting. And then notice in chapter 5, back to chapter 5, verse 10. Verse 10. Notice his reassuring words, reminding his readers and us about God's marvelous grace toward his children who are prone to weaknesses and failure, and the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Because of Christ's constant intercession on our behalf, this God who is the source of all grace will not let you go astray. He will restore you back. He will make you strong. He will make you firm. He will make you steadfast. The fullness of it awaits Christ's return. But even now, God's promise is that I'll make you stand. Even though you fall, I'm the God of all grace. My son is constantly interceding for you. Jesus looks at us through the pages of scripture. He looks at us to warn us and also to remind us, you're not alone. You're not alone. 
I'm there with you. My spirit's working in you. Keep pressing on. Don't be discouraged. Don't despair. Don't despair. I will bring you back. I will restore you. I will use you. I won't cast you out. I will use you. So did Peter learn those three lessons? Yes, indeed. He did learn them. And you know something else? This time, go back to John 15 as we close this message. John 15. The same Peter who was so afraid because of the possibility of losing his life if he confessed who Jesus was. This is what happens. Page 1547, John 21. After Jesus issues the call of feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, in the very next verses, notice what Jesus predicts will happen in Peter's future. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So what Jesus is essentially saying here is this, you pick up your cross, Peter, follow me. Because that meant death. Peter, you'll be taken to face a death that you would not like. They will stretch your hands, symbolic of the cross, they're going to stretch you. And church history tells us Peter died by crucifixion. Whether that's the way it happened or not, we don't know. But the text here says Peter would die in a way he would not prefer to die. You will glorify me, Peter, through a death of not denying me. The same Peter who denied him will now be empowered to not deny Jesus. So in the end, Peter did in one way, was able to keep up his promise to Jesus despite his failures. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of grace. That's why we need it every day. God restores. God builds. And that reminds us also, bear with people's failures. Be tolerant, because you fail on a regular basis and God restores makes you stand firm and steadfast. How can we, who have received that grace, who continue to receive it, not give it to others? So, Jesus will make us stand till the very end. As long as we continue to cling to him, even in our failures, go back to Jesus. That shed blood, once for all, has secured our forgiveness. And for those of you today, you're relying on your own strength to get right with God. You don't want to humble yourself. Let me plead with you. Please turn from your sin. Turn from your own ways of thinking. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. He welcomes you with all your baggages. And he will work in you. He will reveal himself more and more to you. Come with all your doubts. All your sins, you may say, you don't know how much I've messed up. I don't know, I don't need to know. But I will tell you this. Jesus welcomes everyone. And even for those of you as believers, maybe you failed in the past. 
you feel I'm useless, don't sink into that kind of sinful thinking. Jesus will use you as long as you're willing to acknowledge your guilt and come to him for strength and allow him to use your life as he sees fit. Let's pray. God of all grace, I pray that you will seal these truths to our heart as we as we see the beauty of Christ in all our failures. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for putting these words in this passage so we can see the glories of Christ. We rest in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.